Welcome to Norona Podcast. My name is Eivind Eidsvold. In Norona Podcast, we want to inspire you and facilitate great adventures in nature by meeting exciting people and telling fascinating stories. In this episode, we will meet Johanna Stålnacke from Sweden, a great skier, climber, outdoor enthusiast, and an international mountain guide living and working in Chamonix. We have set up a small podcast studio in her own apartment in downtown Chamonix, and we have this one specific question for her today. How to become a mountain guide? What a pleasure to be here in your own apartment. Well, what a pleasure to have you here in Chamonix. So nice to welcome us. It's my pleasure. You look so happy and strong. Have you been in the mountains today or...? Um, Well, first of all, thank you. It's uh, summer season, so I'm uh, busy guiding and uh, uh, also having some time for myself to enjoy the mountains this summer. Ah, So uh, I think my happiness becomes, uh, uh, my happiness comes out of a greater balance between work and play for me this year. So, well, this summer especially. The famous work balance. It's not easy to achieve that one, but I think this summer I have a good key for it. Yeah. (laughs) We have to get to know you. Where do you come from originally? I am originally Swedish. I was born in the north of Sweden. Yeah. In a small mining town called Kiruna. Yeah. Which is is a little bit in the spotlight now because they're actually moving the city because of the mining. So it's a big project going on up there. How was it to grow up in such a exotic place high up north? Um, cold winters, yeah. a lot of snow. Naturally, you, you become very used to winter. And uh, to be honest, like I, I think it gave me a sense of snow that I brought with me uh, my whole life. And a love for that element, mm-hmm. both as a skier, but also just enjoying winter activities in general. Yeah. Um, but it was also a lot of darkness because it's about the Arctic Circle. Um, something that you're not really aware of when you're growing up there because it's uh, normal for you to yeah. have the sun below the horizon for a number of uh, a months per year. But it's never complete darkness. But I think that when I discovered living elsewhere, I also discovered that the sun is really important in my life. Did you go Nordic skiing up there? I did, but it was definitely the downhill skiing that uh, became a big passion for me. Yeah, And was skiing the reason you moved out of Kiruna as well, or was it something else? Uh, first time I moved, it was because of music. Oh. I entered a music high school in, in Stockholm yeah. at age uh, 16. Okay. And at that time... Uh, leaving Kira and I, it also opened up my eyes for climbing, a lot of sports climbing around that area. Mm-hmm. And my sister had started climbing and I got in, introduced by her to the climbing. Um, so that was music and then climbing further on led me to explore France. Yeah. I went to study in France because I wanted to go climbing actually. So climbing um, became your big passion. Yeah, for a number of years after uh, throughout high school when I couldn't ski as much due to living in Stockholm, I, I really got bitten by the bug, the climbing bug. <laughs> yeah. 
started doing a lot of competition and climbing and and uh, later on when I had done a lot of backcountry skiing and I realized that as a climber I could also approach the mountain differently with skis mm. that really opened up my eyes to ski mountaineering yeah mm. so climbing is the reason you discovered the big backcountry possibilities in skiing as well I think it definitely is what brought me to the Alps yeah and um, allowing me to see all the great possibilities of uh, adventure combined climbing and skiing mm. all the things that we can do here do you remember your first time in the Alps yeah when was. was that and where was it actually it was on a school trip uh, during high school we went to Austria mm -hmm. um, to Sölden or Sarek, yeah, and that area and uh, it, I was just amazed by the views of the mountains but it, that was that was early like it took me another few years to come back to the Alps mm -hmm. um, and that was for climbing and I was actually participating in the World Cup in Chamonix on oh, um, difficulty elite climbing Yeah. In 2006, a very short little time when I was doing sports climbing as a competition. But you participated in the World Championship? In the World Cup, yeah. uh, one event. Um, How did that feel? Um, it was a bit of a turning point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because up until then, I had been living in Stockholm and done a lot of sport climbing. It was my first trip to the Alps. Um, and I was curious to actually do a lot of sport climbing and, and continue doing competitions. But I'd also spent um, the summer in Seuss mm -hmm. and doing outdoor sport climbing. And then coming back to the competition, um, I realized that I wasn't as thrilled as I thought. Mm. Um, and I also funnily felt that it was the focus and the, the focus on things that I didn't really resonate as much with, like body focus, mm. like all the sports climbers, they were so skinny. Yeah. And I was skinny and muscular, but I felt almost a bit big and fat in the isolation mm -hmm. next to these very, very skinny ladies. Mm -hmm. And also like the mentality of... of of the competition sport climbing, I I felt like I had passed that stage. Yeah. Uh, and it was a bit of a turning point after come after being in Seuss for a few weeks climbing and really enjoying the outdoor sport climbing to go back in the competition and see that contrast. So that was actually my big, my last big competition. Mm. Mm. It's good to have that kind of turning points in your life. Yeah, I think it's uh, it was a good one and it led me to open my eyes to look above above us here in Chamonix, look yeah. up, because the venue is like in the middle of town and you look around you and you see all <laughs> yeah. these magnificent mountains and like, <laughs> I want to go there and there and there. And I remember I bought my first ice axe uh, uh, on my, my next trip to Chamonix. Yeah, you did. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to do this now. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite activities today? Is it possible to say something about that, climbing or skiing, or is it both, or is it...? So I am a very, very passionate skier. Yeah. If I would have to choose, 
uh, only one activity um, it would probably be skiing however I'm also a big fan of summer activities so uh, the fact that climbing really relates to summer mm. I mean you can do winter climbing ice climbing that's great but really like the rock climbing I really enjoy that too mm. and recently I, I started to learn to paraglide okay um, so I think um, it sounds it's so funny but also scary <laughs> yeah <laughs> when it's... you just mentioned the word paragliding <laughs> because when we see paragliders here in Chamonix they are doing all this crazy stuff in the air <laughs> they are really skilled and um, it's definitely scary sometimes mm -hmm. to to get used to this new element for me the element of air is something that I've never really explored until now and uh, I find the sensations extremely impressive mm -hmm. and yes it does scare me but it also uh, gives a great reward to be a beginner in something and feel the progress that you have in the start mm. and it's more like it's not about the performance for me when I go flying it's about the internal challenge of feeling the wind and uh, coping with my sense, well, the feelings and the emotions, and uh, trusting myself in the air, and mm. it's it's different. Yeah, I don't have any uh, great performance uh, goals at this point of my paragliding career. I just want to learn to really understand and feel good in the air at oh. this point. It's a spectacular place to, to learn it here in Chamonix. And you know, what's really spectacular is when you can combine skiing or climbing with flying. Yeah. So that you can at some you can make a ski tour and you can go ski a nice descent and then you skin up a little bit. And instead of having to uh, take the train down from Montanvert, you can maybe fly out. <laughs> yeah. And in the spring, when it's tricky to get past the rocky moraines that are melting and, and uh, uh, causing obstacles or challenges, maybe you can have a, the possibility to actually fly out. Mm. But it's not every day the wind will allow it. But just to have that possibility some days, that's really inspiring, I think. Oh, it sounds like a dream. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but now... We're sitting here in Chamonix and you're here working and living as a mountain guide. And uh, that's a big, big dream job for many of us. And we would like to know this one specific question we have today. How do you really become a mountain guide? First of all, you have to be very passionate about the mountains. Mm -hmm. Rule number one. Yes. And... Uh, I think more than anything, that passion is key mm -hmm. because uh, the journey to become a mountain guide is, is big and mm -hmm. long, mm -hmm. sometimes extremely cumbersome and tough. Mm -hmm. It's also very rewarding, but without that inner passion and that motivation to be out in the mountains, regardless of if you're going to succeed with your goal of becoming a guide or not if you don't have that passion it's very hard to to have the endurance mm. to even uh, envision to go on to start out on mm. that journey i think so 
if you're really passionate about the mountains and curious to progress in all the disciplines, I think you have the prerequisite mm -hmm. to, to become a mountain guide. But there is also another thing that I think you, you will learn um, through this journey and that you will find is also a very crucial factor if you are going to succeed and enjoy being a mountain guide is to work with people mm. and uh, you have to enjoy to work with people yes because it's a people job mm. it's a service job in in many ways because mm. you're you're offering a service to another human being to go out in the mountains where this person well they hire you because mm, they are likely not having uh, the right amount or enough of skills themselves to be able to travel safe uh, and fulfill their, the objectives that they have. Mm -hmm. And that's why they hire you to help them achieve that goal or uh, to give them an experience um, that they would find hard to realize on their own. Mm -hmm. So you have to really enjoy being out with people in the mountains and meet them where they are and connect, mm. connect with people. And what kind of other experience do you have to sit on before you dare to think of becoming a mountain guide? How good as a climber do you have to be or how good skier should you be? So all of these things, all the prerequisites, all the like technical prerequisites are very thoroughly described in any of the mountain guide programs um, you can find them online mm -hmm. and they're all uh, regardless if you decide to do the Norwegian, the French, the Swiss, the Austrian, the English and the American they're all uh, well formulated what mm -hmm. prerequisites or what requirements mm -hmm. there are um, in every discipline you have to have done a number of routes at a certain difficulty and length in the mountains and climbing, mixed climbing, ice climbing. There's a numerous ski tours you have to do. You have to have a, a good level as a downhill skier. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have to be good at uh, uh, snow awareness. Some of the mountain guides, mountain guide programs are requiring that you are a qualified uh, climbing instructor before before starting the scheme mm -hmm. the program um, yeah you you go into the mountain guide associations website and you have a look mm. uh, but in general you have to have a high level in all mountain disciplines and are the requirements the same in all these different nations pretty much yes mm. yes where did you take your mountain guide i uh, followed course. the norwegian mountain guide program norton yeah. And is there a Swedish as well? There is a Swedish as well. I honestly think they are quite similar. Mm -hmm. uh, all mountain guides program in, in terms of what they will demand mm -hmm. from you. But then there are like what I really like about the Norwegian mountain guide program is that we also have an Arctic element. Yeah. Um, not only uh, are we required to have a good level of all the disciplines. And you also have to go and explore other areas. Mm -hmm. You can't only have um, 
experience from one mountain area. You have to have a broad experience from a variety of, of locations. But during the Norwegian Mountain Guide program, we have models of uh, Nordic skiing mm-hmm. on Svalbard yeah. in the Arctic, where we learn to cope with uh, elements like sea ice, polar bears, uh, the nature and the different uh, requirements of travel in, on Svalbard and the culture there, mm. etc. And that's really interesting. Mm. So I'm really, really fond of that part in the Norwegian Mountain Air program. Yeah. And the French version is that the most difficult is there a no no i don't think so uh but maybe that comes from the vast number of um candidates mm-hmm. who are applying every year every year they have a very tough selection procedure mm-hmm. um and that's here in chamonix yeah i have actually heard that maybe the list of requirements is is not as specific as for the other mountaineer programs however they have a very hard selection process mm. the entry tests are uh, are not easy no uh, no entry tests are easy in any of the mountain guide programs but it's it's just so much competition mm. for the uh, number of uh, spots mm. and and that's what makes it potentially uh, tough like tough and mm. maybe that's where this rumor comes from yeah yeah but does the french guide Uh, look down on a Norwegian guide at any time, or is there a respect between the nations? This is a very cultural question, mm-hmm. and in order to answer this question, we have to look at the mentality, yeah, that and the attitude towards the profession. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a personal observation after living in the Alps for many years, after spending many years in Norway. I used to live in Norway for more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Swedish by origin, so I really have the Scandinavian um, culture with me as well. The Norwegian mountain culture, the Scandinavian with the Swedish one, mm-hmm. but also uh, from being in the Alps, in Chamonix, very integrated in the Chamonix, in the French mountain guide community as well. Some observations upon this topic with potentially be that I think maybe sometime a mountain guide you know it's it's a very old profession mm-hmm. and the status of being a mountain guide is high of course people are really looking look up, up at you I remember uh, moments where people wanted to take a picture with me because they saw that I was a mountain guide and mm. I was a female mountain guide and we we're a bit of a rarity yeah it's a few years back um i think my colleagues of mountain guides in the Alps sometimes treat their clients differently and treat other colleagues differently as well. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of self-importance. And I think this is a, a mentality issue or like a cultural issue. Mm. They sit a little bit up on a high horse. Mm. Everybody who went through the mountain guide program has achieved the diploma. And it's not easy to get it. So regardless of what country you went through, their program, Mm -hmm. you have achieved your medal and your diploma and you have the requirements and the standard to make a really good job. Mm. But then you have the attitude towards your profession. And I think that 
we are a little bit more humble in the Scandinavian mountain guide programs towards mm. the work. Yeah. Because it is a work to work with human beings. It's about connecting with your client. It's about communication as safety. Mm -hmm. And it's about a lot about soft skills as well. Mm. And to back up this argument a little bit, a few years back in the IFMG, which is the International Federation of Mountain Guides, yeah. um, there was some decisions taken that all mountain guides program would have to focus more on soft skills, on this human skill, communication, leadership, etc. Because they saw that in, in some countries, especially Alp countries, there was too much death oh. among aspirants among people trying to go through the program because they were pushing so hard to to show the technical skills. Yeah, so the technical skills, they were regarded as a higher value than the software skills, maybe. I think that they needed to implement more the soft skills mm. and acknowledge the value of that. Mm. In Scandinavia, we have a quite flat leadership structure in the organizations. Mm. In the Alps and in the Latin areas, it's quite quite hierarchical. Mm. And on top of that pyramid is the mountain guide. And the client is below, okay? Yeah. On top of that pyramid in an organization, you have the manager, the director. And further down on the levels, there's not so much of cross-communication. No. Because it's quite a machine bureaucracy mm. and quite hierarchical. Mm. Now, in Scandinavia, we don't really have that leadership or that organization structure in the same way. It is okay for someone who is a little bit further down the ladder mm. to actually have a conversation with, with the manager on the higher level. It's not so unusual. And we are also ask for this we mm. want to have transparency uh, between those levels mm. so as a mountain guide i am used to when i work with scandinavian clients that they want to know they want me to be transparent they want me to explain why are we doing this mm. it's not because they're questioning me that i'm doing a bad job but it's because they expect me to share this of course and they want to learn but most of all they are used to this from the organization um, climate in scandinavia mm. the transparency the benefits of the social democracy exactly and on the contrary sometimes i have realized that when i use the same transparency and i really want to include my clients to make them feel like they are part of the decision mm. so that they can learn. And when I have that leadership style with some of, of the more um, Latin, uh, Latin clients, like the, the French or the Italians or sometimes mm -hmm. the Swiss, they look at me like, why is she asking us this? Doesn't she know her own job? And all I try to do is to teach them something and make <laughs> them think and, you know, give them tools to reflect upon, you know. Mm -hmm. But they're not used to that. They're not used to being involved in that way. They're more used to having the guide pulling the rope, not saying so much, and we go to the top, and if you complain, and, and if you don't do things right, it, they're going to tell you off, or like they're going to not be so happy with you. Mm. So it's a cultural thing. Yeah. A client 
doesn't feel like they can ask as many questions or actually they don't feel comfortable all the time to question the mountain guide mm -hmm. at all times because it is a bit like questioning the top of that triangle mm -hmm. in the organization, questioning the manager, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting for you to be a Scandinavian mountain guide in this area, in Chamonix, and to see all that cultural differences and those social anthropological questions that you ask. It's really big cultural differences between yes. these Central European countries and the Scandinavian countries. And then on top of that, there is the other factor. Um, I'm a woman. Mm. We are less than 2% female mountain guides, international female mountain guides. Less than 2% mm -hmm. overall. And even though the numbers are going up, there are more female mountain guides that are qualified and they're in, in training, etc. We are still a minority. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a quite conservative climate sometimes. Um, there are mountain guides, colleagues of mine, who still think that women doesn't belong in this profession. They have nothing to do in this profession. They cannot offer um, as good of a job as a male mountain guide. Okay. So you meet those conservative oh, yes. opinions out there oh, yes. today in 2022? Yeah, totally. And sometimes that comes with judgment, commenting, insulting. Insulting as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, other male teams can get extremely provoked by me being a female mountain guide or by other female teams that are moving well in the mountains. They get provoked. Uh, their ego gets hurt when they are maybe passed by other female teams. Or if I come with my client and I have a strong client uh, who moves fast, who's fit, mm -hmm. uh, who's stable on his or her feet, and we have a good, efficient pace to move through um, terrain where we want to minimize exposure... And we are obliged to sometimes pass people. Um, I can get screamed out, out upon. I can get insulted, not only by other mountain guys who get provoked by me passing with my clients, <laughs> but also so bad. but also by other amateur, by other males who are like, "Who are you?" And they come with swear mm. words and they say things or they comment in a condensating way or whatever. Um, so this is the dark side of the mountain culture in the yes, in the Alps. Yes, and I am not alone to to have these experiences. Um, I share them mm -hmm. with other female mountain guides. Um, I would say that all other female mountain guides, every one of them, have had experiences like this in the mountains. Mm. Um, so I also have female clients coming to me because they want the female mountain guide. Uh, because they feel that that they get to t they feel attacked by men, they don't feel seen or heard or uh, respected in the same way, um, and they feel more confident having a female mountain guide. Mm. Um, so, what's your message to the girls and women out there that dream to be a mountain guide in the future? We need more of you. Come on, yeah. Let's uh, continue balancing out. Distribution of people in the mountains. Because mm. there's... there's uh, it sounds like the military or the police, like 30, 40 years ago. It sounds like the mountain guide culture has 
not as up to date with their gender balance as they should be. Yes, I think it's it's not unfair to say this. However, I also see that among the younger mountain guides, there's an openness. Mm-hmm. Um, the bad attitudes, I'm not saying that it's always an older mountain guide or an older male climber or alpinist, but I think that... Um, but among, too often it is. <laughs> well, among the, the younger generation of at least mountain guides, mm-hmm. I feel that there is an openness and an acceptance mm. of and an acknowledgement that a female mountain guide is a capable mountain guide yeah. and uh, less of judgment. Mm. But those attitudes, those rotten eggs of attitudes, unfortunately, it's a part of of working here in this crowd and mountains as well, mm. where we are obliged to pass people and where people can get very provoked when mm. you do that, more so as a woman. Mm. And I get yelled at much more than my male colleagues. It's a pity to hear that. It makes me feel bad as a man. <laughs> I wish we can change that. And I'm, I'm, uh, I want to inspire as many women mm. as possible to, to, to do this job and to go into the mountain guide program and have their visions of becoming a really good mountain guide. And it's definitely a profession that's as much open for women as for men. You mm. know? There shouldn't be no difference between no. the genders. No. The but requirements are hard. You have to be fit. You have to be strong. You have to be passionate about the mountains. You have to love working with people. Mm. You have to be ready to work both on bad weather days and good weather days, etc. But it's a beautiful profession. And today I had one of those lovely days of guiding where I was smiling. I was uh, uh, really, really enjoying. I was out on this new route that I hadn't done before with my clients really enjoying this beautiful crack climb uh, up here, up above Chamonix. And uh, we, we didn't have a lot of teams on the route. It was a bit of an obscure, obscure one. And it was just lovely. And I, I smiled and thought to myself, I really love this job. <laughs> Sounds so good. A good day then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For how long did you train to become a mountain guide? For how many years? Oh my goodness. When, it's, uh, when did you first get this feeling that this is the profession for me? So I became a mount, uh, I became a climbing instructor, sorry, mm-hmm. in 2010. And I guess in 2010, I started to quietly think that, wow, what if I one day could become a mountain guide? And very quietly, because I didn't really dare to say it out loud. I started to look into the requirements mm-hmm. and I started to gather experience. Uh, but it was too early on to really express it, even like to myself. But I think that's where the dream started. And I, I w- wondered, maybe I could do this one day. And a few, a few years later, I made my first uh, attempt. Mm-hmm. I sent in the application, I went on the entry tests and I failed. Oh. I made a mistake and I failed. And I was so disappointed. I was like, okay, I brush away the dust here and <laughs> yeah. like the, the, the disappointment. Like, okay, we're going to try again. 
And then I applied the following year. Um, and I didn't start that year either because we were too few mm -hmm. at the time. I reapplied and then I got in 2015 to the Norwegian Mountain Guide program. And it took me four years to go through. It's normally, it's usually between three and a half to five years time. Yeah. Uh, all depending on how you perform through the mount to through the education, all the exams, all the courses, um, all the requirements that you need to fulfill through the program of hours to log of personal experience. You have a number of uh, work that needs to be documented, aspirant work, you have um, you have requirements to fulfill. Mm. So it's a long and demanding education. <laughs> yes. It's really a lot... Well, it's really a proof of endurance and a proof of stamina to work towards your goal. Mm. But you will do it if you think you can do it. Because then you're ready to do what it takes yeah. to get through. But I really think that you have to be quite stubborn and you have to be able to visualize yourself being a mountain guide mm. long before you're a mountain guide. Mm. And I think that's key. For that's... me as well, it was important to have um, a coach by my side because I was quite uh, nervous of the exams. Mm -hmm. I, I felt the pressure on my shoulders that if I would fail my exam, that I would have to wait another year or maybe two to try again. And I didn't want it to drag out that long. I really wanted to fulfill this long time, big, hairy goal of mine to be able to work with something I really am so dedicated to mm. and I'm so passionate about. So you had some kind of mentor? Yes, yeah. uh, several mentors. Uh, so my coach, Karina, she really helped me to condition my mind to be able to perform at my best when all the conditions around me were at their worst. Mm -hmm. And that could be conditions of weather, that could be conditions of mountain conditions, you know, but also the, the pressure or the expectation that you put on yourself and, and the social pressure as well mm. you're being looked at judged you're going to perform and show that you can do this and yeah it was tough at times um, but I learned so much during those years yeah. uh, I learned so much of life about life and there are so many of these uh, experiences that I bring with me as a mountain guide now when I coach my clients because I want to lift them. Mm -hmm. I want them to develop, to progress, not only with like the technical skills, but I want them to progress with their life and see the, their capability and their possibility to develop. Mm. So Both. you want them to develop as human beings as well? Yes. I want to, if I see that I can help them and they want that, mm -hmm. I, I want to give them some tools, you know? And I think the mountain playground is the best school for for finding out about your own capability mm. as a human being. It's uh, you can really raise your confidence in what you do, and you can bring that anywhere yeah. in relationships, 
in relationships with your family, at work, um, in the relationship you have with yourself in front of a challenge, mm -hmm. etc. But also like how you deal with risk and danger and your own emotions and, and how you deal with your thoughts. Mm. It's super interesting. It sounds like a really good philosophy as a guide. And that you use the mountains and your guiding as a metaphor for everything else. I bring it with me, you know. My experience, we bring them with us. Mm. And I'm not trying to um, impose my experience of this and that to my clients. But when I see that I can give them some tools and if they are open to that, I think it's a very powerful um, arena to pass on tools and share life. Mm. Totally agree. Mm. So how is an average day as a mountain guide here in Chamonix? You get a call and then you get another call and you decide where to go and then it's a early start the next day or mm. how's your average day as a mountain guide? So usually uh, my clients, I'm very happy to have a lot of returning clients and sometimes new clients too and usually they book me well in advance. Okay. And uh, Like a year or half a year? Sometime a year, sometime more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Winter season can be quite hectic. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, a little bit in advance. Um, and we go through like, okay, what would they like to do? Um, what ambitions do they have? Um, what type of terrain are they looking for? What do, what are their dreams and goals? And how can how can I help them to realize some of those? Mm. Um, then I never make any decisions of exactly where to go until on the day or bef the day before we're gonna go. When I see the weather, when I see how the conditions are, uh, etc. And and in um, communication with my clients. Mm -hmm. So I'm keeping things very, very open. Yeah. Um, when I work from home, this is this is a garden of a mountain, like a mountain clay, play, playground that I know inside out. Um, I also have to my help a huge network of guides around me, uh, where we pass on a lot of information about uh, the the current conditions on the mountains and stuff like this, and a library of guidebooks. Uh, and I love to go out and explore new routes. Mm -hmm. If I can, and if that matches with uh, the ambitions of my clients, I, I'm more than happily doing that. Um, to keeping this like curiosity and uh, excitement yeah, about of course. being out there. Um, so yeah, an average day, it's, uh, there is no blueprint of an average day. There is no average day. <laughs> well, it, I think you could have an average day if you work for the company... Uh, the Guide de Chamonix mm. um, maybe if you go they, they distribute tours in the evenings and they hand them out are you gonna you, we have this client who wants to go there okay Jean-Michel you can take her or we have this client who wants to go there oh Caroline you go there um, but I don't work like that no because I, I am independent I have my own business as a lot of mountain guides are it's mm. nothing unique but I really try to choose a mountain objective that will resonate with the ambitions of my client, with the phys physiques, mm. uh, where this client um, wants to go, um, both externally and 
maybe also internally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, it's it's really like in the communication with my clients, I get ideas of what could be appropriate uh, objectives. And also like the level of the client. Mm. Uh, and to try my best to assess that level in advance and to choose an objective that, that will be, you know, not biting off more than we can chew, but that is presenting to us a little bit of a challenge, mm -hmm. but where we can feel mastery, where I can help my clients to feel that they master something yeah. and that they evolve. And then from there, when we know each other a little bit more, we continue that journey and I can present other tours that I find appropriate uh, or can be exciting mm -hmm. or try to, you know, present new things for them so that they open up their eyes mm -hmm. and like, oh, I wanted to, I really wanted to go on that 4,000 meter peaks and it's like, ah, oh, it's not a condition, but hey, we can go there. And I know you haven't heard about it, but this can be amazing because of XYZ. And if they say yes, I, I you know, openness, I ask my client, come to Chamonix or come to the Alps with an open mind. Mm. Trust that we will do something amazing, but come with an open mind because that allows me as a mountain guide to pick objectives and present them to you um, in 360 degrees around here. Yeah, and there's that's, so many possibilities. Yes, and we have three countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in France and we go through the tunnel, we're in Italy and I go through the border in, in Châtelard and I'm in Switzerland. In within two hours of drive, I, I cover a vast amount of the Western Alps. Mm. It's a huge playground. Uh, let let me compose a great experience for you. Mm. And that's why you live here. You don't want to live in Kiruna to be a guide there or in Lofoten in Norway. or in These places like Lofoten, I used to live in Tromsø in, yeah. in the Lingen Alps. I, I spent a lot of time there. Um, I love these places. They're magnificent. But what's difficult with them is if you want to work as a mountain guide all year round, it uh, requires you to travel a lot. Mm. And, you know, our travel patterns have changed. Yeah. But also, from an environmental perspective, I'm really happy that I don't have to fly so much. Mm. And then, I mean, it's better to drive or I can... You know, here we can take the bus over to Italy if we want, or we can take the, you know, we can share the transport in an easier way. Mm. Um, I love living here because it also allows me to sleep in my own bed. Yeah. And I need that. To make a home. I need to have a home. I understand that. Yeah. As a guide, <laughs> you need to have a home as well. You know, it's it's definitely a profession where we can be a little bit of like a vagabonds. Mm going away f to travel and work all the time and I think that's a personal choice mm. I love traveling but I, I don't want to travel all the time when I'm working no and if I travel I would like to also travel you know for my own adventures mm. and I really try to keep that balance we were talking about this to also have the energy and the time to go out on my own small adventures where I feel that I can put myself to play mm. on my level and where I am physically, mentally and where I get to really challenge my, myself. Yeah. Because when I'm guiding, it's a different challenge. And I understand that your level of skiing is on another planet than some of your clients as well. Yes. I, <laughs> and your I mean, climbing, yes. 
Well, I've you... seen some of your skiing <laughs> and some of your climbing, and it seems extremely high level. I love the days when I can bring my body and mind to the mountains and meet the mountain there and really use it, like use my body mm. to its max capacity. Mm. And I don't do that when I'm guiding. No. And when I'm ski guiding, it's very, very rare. And I have really strong ski, ski, skier clients, but it's very rare that I get really tired in my legs when I'm ski guiding. Mm. It's just a different a technique, you know? Yeah. I, I guess when I ski for myself, I can use a different speed uh, that maybe requires more strength, yes, more technique, yes, but it also allows me to save the energy. Yeah. So it's it's... I can't ski like that when I'm guiding because then I will leave my clients behind. Behind, <laughs> uh, and I don't say this to sound like cocky or anything. It's just, that's just the name of the game. I think it's a fact. <laughs> I think it's a fact. Uh, but I do have really strong skier clients, and um, we do some amazing stuff uh, on all angles and different mm. type of snow and different type of. Uh, experiences ski mountaineering steep skiing free ride we drop cliffs sometimes we go on ski tours sometimes we just do mellow tours on the glacier looking at the views you know adapt to to who is my client mm. you don't have to be um, a professional athlete to be my client i was having an amazing day with a 70 year old lady skiing the Valle Blanche this year and i took her down to some amazing terrain in the crevasses and she started crying because it was so beautiful and it really touched me so much. <laughs> she did. And it was one of the most memorable days of the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing extreme about the ski ability there, but the environment is mm. so beautiful. And an experience yes. for a lifetime, both totally. for her and for, for you. We must uh, end this episode, unfortunately, but we have some questions that we give to every guest. Um, what is your go-to Bruno clothing? when you are guiding here in summertime? I really love the Beatyhorn uh, Gore-Tex jacket, yeah. the light one. Because it's light? Because it's light. Uh, the Lingen one uh, is very nice as well. I use the Lingen one a lot mm -hmm. um, because you can open the zips under the arms yeah. and like that. I really love soft shell pants and shorts. Um, and then the lightweight down jackets are amazing. Yeah. And this is the Chamonix climate. So yes. you use the Nurona products for this kind of climate. Yes, totally. Um, but if I'm going to highlight one Gore-Tex product, I really want to highlight the Lingen shells, the Lingen Gore-Tex jacket, because you can use it ski touring in the winter. It's great. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, it works perfectly. And it's still... Um, robust enough yeah and it's it's lightweight but but it's it's not gonna it's not the lightest lightweight like the bt ones are a little bit lighter i think they're still in the collection yeah, i think so yeah it's a perfect balance of durability of weight and yeah and mm. also the function the functionality when you can open the sips and you have ventilation and that's super important mm. so I, I i always have that one in my pack and what about winter time? What's your favorite go-to suit? It's of course Lofoten. Yes, I am a big fan of the Lofoten collection. I love it. And I um, see it more and more often around the Alps now. 
yeah. people using Lofoten, different nationalities, different skiers. You know, the Lofoten uh, Gore-Tex shells, I use Gore-Tex shells. Um, they are robust and you ski here, you free ride, you, sometimes you are in the forest, you're gonna hit branches and, or you do repels and you, you rub a little bit against the rock or you're, you know, it's definitely outstanding products because they will endure those type of activities mm. day by day. Mm. I really like them. Could you tell us your best tips and tricks to create nature experiences in our everyday life? I want to talk about the sunsets mm -hmm. because that's a good choice. Yeah, I, I think the sunsets, uh, you know, use the sunset. Go out and find a spot where you can watch the sunset. You don't have to be looking at the sunset by the sea. You can climb up a little hill and and watch how the sun goes down mm. on the mountains and see how the colors are changing yeah and you you don't have to go far to do that you can bring a picnic you can bring your kids um you know it can be so easy you don't have to travel far the sunset will be there yeah but um, it's a mission to go out watch it yes outside. and watch how the colors are changing open up the senses and take that in and and also like feel how different the smell in the air gets as the sun goes down and what happens when the wind goes away like feel it on your skin i love sensations and the sensory experience that na nature will give us mm -hmm. i think that would be my my go-to and <laughs> <laughs> uh, which international celebrity would you like to invite on your next trip Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey's. Yes. She's interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, I think she'll have a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, I, I, I would love to invite her to go on a, on a mountain, explore with me. Hmm. That would be uh, very, very interesting. I don't think she, she's done that type of... Maybe no. she has. She's a very well-traveled and amazing woman. Um, but it would be so interesting to to share i hope i hope someone just tells her that yeah. you would like to do that tell oprah to give me a call <laughs> call Johanna in chamonix yes that would be lovely and what kind of steps have you taken in your life to live a little bit more environmentally friendly well i do lots of less flying yeah but i do heli skiing and i get a lot of um a lot of reactions upon this because you heli ski because i guide heli skiing sometime and, and then you get some hate on your yes, instagram account yes accounts. because people people think you have to be either black or white and they say oh you're a hypocrite how can you love nature if you go heli skiing well i think we have to ask ourselves how can we in our daily life have focus on nature we can't be good at everything we can't uh, i mean if we are going to be really black and white, we really have to look at everything we do and where the products uh, come from and how do I travel from A to B in all directions and like the, the clothes I'm buying, they also come here with transport. I mean, I think it's very hard to be perfect, mm. but choose a few things in life and, and try to make it better. Yeah. I try to 
be more mindful about how I eat. Yeah. I've cut down red meat. Mm-hmm. I very, very rarely eat red meat. And I try to be a bit more mindful about the fish that I buy. And I buy more locally produced stuff. Um, and stuff like this. Mm. That's something that I've changed recently. Like the last, if I look back, how I used to eat two, three years ago. And how I eat now. Mm. And honestly, I think that that focus has also helped me to live a healthier lifestyle. And yeah. be stronger. Because I'm more aware of it. What's your favorite soundtrack then? When you go skiing or when you drive towards the ski lift in the morning? I am a big, big fan of electronic music. Okay. Yes, that's what I listen to. So what kind of artists? I like techno. Yeah, hard <laughs> techno? Or? Uh, different, different. sometimes melodic techno, house, deep house music. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm training, I want it to be like the BPM to be quite high. Yeah. Uh, following my mood. I went to music high school. I'm a singer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have this lyrics, they really get deep on me. And sometimes I get so caught up in listening to the lyrics that it's getting annoying. Yeah. Um, so electronic music, I listen to the rhythm, the sounds, and it's taking me on a journey. So when I need that journey, when I'm out running or ski touring, it boosts me. And it sometimes goes hand in hand with the nature experience. <laughs> and I just love that. <laughs> and is there one electronic artist that you would recommend us to listen to? Oh, there's so many. I really love this woman. Uh, she's a DJ. She's uh, called Nora and Pure. Nora and Pure. Nora and Pure. Um, she's uh, if you are like a beginner electronic music techno, it's it's a it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, she has every week she she publish uh, online on her different uh, channels a, a mix a mixtape yeah. yeah. of electronic music. Uh, it's a deep house and deep dance music, um, and it's really good. I think it's very variety. Other electronic music that I like. I, I like the Afterlife, uh, the Tale of Us, Mind Against, these guys. And I like uh, I like some hard techno, like Emily Lenz, sometime Lily Palmer. Um, I can I, I like Boris Brescia. I don't know, do you know any one of these? Yeah, some of them. Some of them? <laughs> Not all of them. Okay. Uh, they can be well, like... so many good recommendations. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's a variety. I can mention a lot of them. Oh, so good. Download SoundCloud and you'll find out. <laughs> yeah, well, I have SoundCloud, of course, but uh, I will download these ones. Awesome. Is there anything else you would like to add in the end? Like to say uh, a kind of a life motto or do you have a life philosophy you want to share with us? I have something written on, on uh, you know, the register plates on my car. Yeah. Um, I, I chose a quote to put under instead of say you know normally it says where you bought the car yeah but on my plates on my car it says do what you love love what you do ah that's a good one (laughs) (laughs) so simple but yes that's mine that's a life philosophy (laughs) and it's on your car as well yeah everyone knows (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much Johanna thank you Avid it was a pleasure hope to see you again soon likewise Norona Podcast is published by the Norwegian outdoor company Norona Sport. 
Norana has been producing premium outdoor products since 1929. Check out our clothes, backpacks, tents, sleeping bags and skis on our website norana.com. There you will also find more inspiring stories about our rich history, the expeditions we have participated in, our ambassadors and our ambitions in sustainability. Thank you for listening to Norana podcast. We really appreciate it. And welcome to nature.